Scripture has been read from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 17, and we'll reference uh, most of that section, but I want to read primarily from verse 13 and just view all of the other uh, verses or the whole section uh, through that lens. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, uh, most of you know, if you read the Bible at all, that the most troubled church, even though I think they may get a bad rap for this because there are some other churches that were in pretty bad shape, but the most troubled church, the one whose sins have been most on display in the scriptures is the church at Corinth. Uh, The church at Corinth had a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And Paul's first letter to them that we have, which is where our text is taken from, He addresses many of those sins, many of those issues, everything from the sins that they had embraced, in fact, had almost become boastful of, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to marital issues that were becoming commonplace, that they thought it was okay to do certain things in the context of marriage, Uh, Christians that were participating in pagan feasts, etc., And yet Paul still calls them believers. He challenges them, and he challenges them at very serious levels. However, in in chapters 10 through 12, Paul wraps his counsel and his instructions to these Christians really around the theme of the Lord's Supper. And one could even say he combines both the Lord's Supper as well as baptism as the basis for his instruction and his counsel to to these Christians who, by the way, had formerly been pagans. And now they were, so they weren't even ethnic Jews, and all of that is brought to bear in the issues that he addresses. So, therefore, as a means of instructing this particular church that has received the gospel, what, what, what Paul does is he lets them know One, that the gospel that is audibly received in preaching, as he addresses this in chapter 1, verse 18, that the the gospel that is audibly received in preaching, that it is the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved, and the gospel as it is physically received in the Lord's table which he communicates in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, and then also throughout chapter 11. But he wants them to know that the gospel, whether it is audibly received through preaching or physically received through the table, that it is sufficient for the people of God in their struggles, in their temptations, in their seasons of trial so that everything they need has been given to them and it is rehearsed in the preaching of the gospel and it is physically received through the Lord's table. And what Paul wants to do is to let them know that what they have received through the gospel is sufficient. So whatever it is they are struggling with, whatever season of trial they are in, whatever their temptations may be, What God has supplied and what God re-announces and reaffirms through the gospel preached and the sacraments received is sufficient until he calls them home. Now in doing this, what Paul does here in chapter 10, in verses 1 through 5, he directs them to the children of Israel and their experience in the wilderness. And he basically makes, he makes a, a comparison or uh, he, he, he shows the similarity between the two groups, the Corinthians, and which is really interesting because the Corinthians were not ethnic Jews. 
They are largely pagans. And what he's, he's doing is making a correlation between the children of Israel and in the wilderness and their circumstances in Corinth. And the point that he makes in verses 1 through 4, in a moment we'll look at four things relative to those passages or those verses, but in, what, what he does is he, he informs them of how God sufficiently supplied or fed the children of Israel with spiritual food and spiritual drink that should have been sufficient to lead them away from temptation while they were in the wilderness. That's, that's his point. So in verses 1 through 4, he emphasizes of how God, uh, or he directs them to the children of Israel, and how God gave them spiritual food and spiritual drink. Uh, and, and um, you know, in their journeys and what he gave them in that spiritual food and that spiritual drink somehow should have produced in them something other than what they got. But in other words, their actions isn't because they didn't receive something sufficient for their trials. What they received was sufficient. So let's make four preliminary points about the spiritual food and drink that Paul alludes to. One, although Paul refers to this, the spiritual food and spiritual drink, although he refers to it as being spiritual, what he's actually referring to is actually physical. The spiritual food that he's alluding to is the manna that the children of Israel ate while they were in the wilderness. Now, if you know the Old Testament, then you know what took place is that on every day, for six days out of the week, all while they were in the wilderness, all they had to do was get up in the morning and there was, there was something that is indescribable. And the thing that I really enjoy about it is that it gives the idea that it had the flavor of oil because, you know, the best food has a little oil in it. And so every day all they had to do was get up and this manna, this bread from God, was provided for them. And God provided it all while they were in the wilderness. It's not the only thing they ate. But they always had manna. And to show them that this isn't just God providentially providing for them, but this is God directly providing for them. On the sixth day, they didn't gather manna. But the Lord provided enough for the sixth day and the seventh day. So that, therefore, on the day of rest, they didn't even have to go so far as gathering the manna. They didn't have to cook it. It was already prepared. And yet... On the seventh day, God had provided enough on the sixth day that they could have manna. So that's his point of reference as it relates to spiritual food. It's not physical. It's not spiritual as opposed to being physical. But the spiritual drink that he's alluding to is an experience, an experience that's recorded in Exodus chapter 17. For the children, it's, it's amazing what happens. They, in the previous chapter, in chapter 15, the Lord leads them through uh, the, the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and so forth got drowned it. You remember the song, drowned it, not drowned, drowned it in the Red Sea. And when they came across on dry land, Miriam leads all of the women and, or leads all of the congregation in this great song of praise. And Moses leads them in a great song of praise. And lo and behold, in chapter 17, with all of that walking across red seas and all of that praise in a desert place, they got thirsty. And it would, be, make, it would make sense. It was a dry and an arid place. But, but then all of a sudden when they got thirsty, they started crying, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. You know, and so the God who opened the Red Sea, they didn't think to ask him for a drink of water, so they started complaining. And they took issue with Moses, and Moses decided, he said, well, look, Lord, you know, he went to the Lord on their, be on, 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 on their behalf, and the Lord says, here, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my rod. I'm I want you to stand on the rock, I want you to strike the rock, and I'll stand on the rock. Now, the rod is an actual instrument of judgment. 
And what the Lord is saying, it's almost a courtroom scene. He says, bring the elders. And this is a courtroom scene. And the Lord, in the midst of the elders, he says, okay, now Moses, bring down the rod of judgment. In other words, let the judgment come on me. And when Moses struck the rock, the rock opened. And instead of the people, these ungrateful people getting judgment that they deserved, they got sweet water, that spiritual drink. And here's what, what, what Moses or what, what Paul is recording here, is that God supernaturally fed his people and God graciously refreshed his people when they deserved judgment. And that's what he's calling spiritual food. And spiritual drink. Here's the second thing to note in verse 4 of chapter 10. Paul says that the rock that provided the water. that he, call, he, he says two things about that rock. On the one hand he says it was the rock that followed them. But then he goes on to even become more specific. And says that that rock was Christ. Now we also know that the manna itself, Jesus in John chapter 6 makes it clear that the manna that they ate was, was symbolic and prototypical of the true bread from heaven. And guess what he says in chapter 6 of John's gospel? I'm that true bread. So we can say that the spiritual food, which was the manna, was Christ. And certainly the water that gave them refreshment was Christ. That's why it's spiritual food and spiritual drink. Thirdly, this is called spiritual food and spiritual drink because in these physical elements, God was demonstrating and reaffirming to his people what he tells Abraham in, in Genesis 15, that I am your exceedingly great reward. God is reaffirming every time the children of Israel went out to eat that manna or to gather their manna, every, the, the drink that, that gave them refreshment, it was a physical reminder that Abraham, what, what the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, you have everything you need. You have everything that I have promised you because I am your great and exceedingly reward. That brings us to a fourth thing, and that is the implications in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 10. The implication is that the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that was supplied by God, it should have deepened their faith in him, and it should have deepened their affection towards him. That's the implication, that the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that they received, it should have deepened their faith or their trust in God, and it should have deepened their affection towards him. Look at what it says beginning in verse 5. It says, nevertheless, even, they, even though they had spiritual drink and spiritual food, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. He says, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Then he goes on to talk about those things that they did and, and how they conducted themselves. And instead of, them, instead of their faith in God being deepened, and instead of their affection be in, in God being deepened, instead what Paul says, it's a great statement, he says they sat down to eat and they rose up to play. And when he says play, it's not board games that he's talking about. He says play, he's not saying that they just, you know, they just played around. No, what he calls play are those things they, they conducted themselves as those who never knew God. He goes on to catalog in verses 6 and 7 some of the things that they did. But the point is, what God had supplied them with his spiritual food and the spiritual drink, should have caused them to trust him more and it should have caused them to have a deeper affection for them, which leads us to a fourth thing. Paul's point to the Corinthians as he uses the children of Israel as a point of contact, Paul's point to them 
is that the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness parallels their experience in the world. And just as God supplied spiritual food and drink that was sufficient for them in the wilderness, God also feeds his people with spiritual food and spiritual drink that is sufficient to nurture their faith and deepen their affection no matter where they are. So whether it's the children of Israel in the wilderness, whether it's pagans who have come to a saving knowledge in first century Corinth, or whether it's Christians living in 20th, 21st century America, God has given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness in Christ. And as we receive that and are reminded of it in the gospel, and as we receive it physically through the Lord's table, then we are, it should deepen our faith, and it should strengthen or deepen our affection towards God and cause us to live in a manner that is different from those who are the recipients of spiritual food and spiritual drink. In other words, there is something here that Paul says that should help us and guide us in our hour of temptation. Now with that in mind, our focus again is chapter 13, because, or verse 13, because notice again what Paul says in verse 13. There is no temptation. Now, I want to pause before we examine this idea of temptation. I want to pause for a moment because here's his point. He's, he's going past the fact of their sin. Paul is now at this point moving beyond the fact of their sin and saying in essence at the moment that you sin there was a temptation that you were strengthened that would allow you to not go in the direction of sin. And so he's saying in essence that no temptation has come to you that's uncommon. You know it's one of the funny things about us and I just say us as a people as, as, as people in general, but especially, I think, in our generation. We are, we, we are snowflakes, and I don't mean it in the way that people use that in a political way. But we are all so full of God that is just us, and we always think that our experience is so unique that we, we, can, we put a, a modern twist on nobody knows the, the trouble I'm in. Nobody knows my sorrow. That's the way we view it. And we act as if our circumstances and our struggles and our temptations are not common. And what Paul does is he puts us all on equal ground. So whether you are Old Testament saints in dry, dusty Sinai Peninsula, or whether you are first century, quote unquote, according to his peers, modern saints in Corinth, or if we are jet-age Christians in the 21st century America, there is no temptation that's uncommon. So let's look at three things here as it relates to temptation. And I want to focus, begin our focus, not on temptation that is just common to man in general, but I want to talk about temptation or define temptation for redeemed sinners. And my wording here is intentional and it's very careful. My, I want to talk about temptation from the vantage point of redeemed sinners. Be, because you are redeemed, you don't stop being a sinner. You, you are a saint, yes, and that therefore you are redeemed. But you are a sinner. And so what I want to do is first off define temptation for redeemed sinners. And here's the other part that's carefully chosen redeemed sinners in a fallen world. All of that's true. You are a sinner, you are redeemed, and you live in a fallen world. One of the reasons we want to make, make sure we're clear on that so that you never get the notion that you, until the Lord returns and we are all in his presence, that you never get the notion that you're at home. You're pilgrims until he comes home. And so because we are pilgrims in a, in a foreign land, there is nothing including you 
that will ever be all right. Okay, so, so, so understand, we are sinners, we are redeemed sinners, and we live in a fallen world. And no matter how good the part of the fallen world you are in, it's broken. It's always interesting to me and, and somewhat amusing in a sad sort of way, sad, twisted sort of way, when I, when I hear of Christians trying to find that safe spot in this world. And you just say, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. Doesn't matter what the political landscape says this part of the country is. It's all sin. It's not red and blue. It, no, it's all stained in sin. And so, therefore, we are redeemed sinners living in a fallen world. That being the case, let me attempt to define, for first off, before we define um, temptation, whether we are here, whether we are in the time in which Paul wrote or the time that he wrote about in the Old Testament. Here's, let's look at the aim of all temptation that is given to or that is experienced by redeemed sinners in a fallen world. The aim of all temptation, and it's threefold. Now, the primary source, by the way, for temptation in this world is the first one that's sin, which is Satan. But there are three aims for all of all temptation for fallen sinners or redeemed sinners in a fallen world. Temptation seeks to A, divert our faith from the promises of God. Temptation seeks to get you to look away from the promises of God. This is why I say this is for believers, because unbelievers do not rest in the promises of God. So what all temptation is aimed at, getting you to not look at what God has promised you. Because everything that God has promised is given in Christ. So temptation seeks to get you to not look at God's promises. Secondly, temptation seeks to distract our focus from the glory of God. Temptation seeks to divert our faith from God's promises. But it also seeks to distract our focus from his glory. Most famous Protestant catechetical question is question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God or to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And temptation seeks to think, makes us think that somehow something else is our focus. That we're, we're on this earth for something other than God's glory. Now, there's other sides to that, and there are dimensions to that, because somehow some folk used to think, well, you can't, uh, John, John, uh, John, John Wesley and, and, and uh, George Whitfield in particular, when he was converted, he came, from a hard, uh, came into a hard understanding of law and gospel, so he thought it was against God's glory for him to have fun. That's how come you have monastic orders right now. Because people think, well, but I got to distract. No, we can glorify God. I like what Paul tells the Corinthians. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. However, and that's what puts moderation on our engagement. Seeking God's glory. So temptation seeks to not only divert our, our faith from God's promises, it also seeks to distract our focus from God's glory. I think we're, like I said, there are ways and reasons for we, uh, a, a mean, by, by which we can have our, our, our focus of God's glory distracted, whether we think that God's glory interferes with our fun or whether we don't realize how we can glorify God in mundane things. Whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of the Lord. But thirdly, temptation seeks to undermine our devotion to God. It seeks to undermine our devotion to God. So three things that all temptation that, that we experience, uh, by, experience by redeemed sinners in a fallen world are aimed at one of those three things. 
and, and, and there are variations of it, but one of those three things, to divert our faith from God's promises, and when we turn from trusting in God's promises, doesn't matter what we trust outside of that. It doesn't really matter. When we are distracted from focusing on God's glory, it doesn't matter how we define the rest of it. It's going to play itself out in many different ways. And when we somehow don't think that we owe God devotion, again, it doesn't matter how it will manifest itself. So, so the threefold aim of, that is, of, of temptation that is common for all sinners living in a fallen world can be categorized along, along those three lines. Divert our faith from God's promises, distract our focus from his glory, and undermine our devotion to him. Well, that brings us to a second consideration, and that is the channels through which temptation will come to us. The channels through which temptations will come through us. Again, it's threefold. And I think everything else can, can kind of be traced back to one of these three things. Temptation can come to us through our sense of self. Our sense of self. In other words, what we would call our identity. Temptation can come to, temptation to divert our faith in God's promises to distract our focus from his glory or to undermine his devotion, our devotion to him can come through the channel of our sense of, of, of identity, how we identify ourselves. Now, here's what I mean by this. And you'll notice that Paul in chapter uh, 12, verse 13, he makes this emphasis to, uh, again, these Corinthian believers. In verse 13, he says... Um, or beginning in verse, uh, well, yeah, verse 13. In, in verse 13, he says, for, uh, in, yeah, uh, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, here's how temptation can enter into our level of self-identity. Somehow, if we, if we don't view ourselves through the lens of what we have become through baptism into Christ, then we will focus either on our regional, our ethnic, our community, or our political identity. In other words, here's what Paul is saying, and he uses language similar to this in elsewhere, where he says, in Christ, we are neither Greek nor, uh, or, or Greek nor, nor Jews. We are neither bond nor free. We are neither male nor female. It doesn't mean that we cease to be any of those things. You don't become any less ethnic than what you are. You don't become any less. Your politics are not shaped by who you are in Christ. No, that's not what defines you, but, but here's what Paul is saying. Here's, wh here's why I think these become avenues, they become channels by which we are led into temptation. This is what will lead us away from trusting in the promises of God when our identity is so great that what God has given us in his promises don't include us. See, somehow when we think that God's promises... Don't reach us, or and so therefore we rebel against it either intentionally or unintentionally. When we become more of whatever, you know, people talk about the hyphenated American. When we become more of what's on the right side than what we are on the left side, than what we are on the right side, then that confuses our identity in Christ. Paul is addressing this in Corinth. Temptation causes us to travel the road by which we define ourselves as being the most important part of us. Uh, we'll all say, well, whatever area we're from, oh, if you don't, if you don't watch out, the, the X is going to come out in me. The Overtown is going to come out in me. The Miami Garden is going to come out in me. And, and here's what he said, no, but, but you died. It doesn't mean you're not from Miami Gardens. It doesn't mean you're not from Overtown. It doesn't mean you're not from Watts. But it means you've been remade in Christ. 
So on your birth certificate, it says you were born here. But in your baptism, it says you've been reborn here. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you should not celebrate where you're from. Celebrate it. Love it. But don't be held in bondage to it. Whatever your political views are, because the idea is that just as we can all worship in Christ, no matter what our background is, it means even in our transitional momentary identities. And sometimes these, how we define ourselves culturally, socially, by the schools that we went to or didn't go to. And listen, we, we even looked at how James uh, tells us how we can make, make judgments on people because of outward circumstances. So don't let our blue bloodness, don't let our ethnicity cause us to, 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 to obscure what God has promised us. Likewise, I think sometimes our, our sense of self can also distract us from God's glory. That we're so much concerned about, about beating our, our chest about these secondary things that we allow our, the, the glory of God to manifest in how we deal with those who are not from our circles. We have issues with that. I was just listening to a report uh, just yesterday that talked about how 40% of Christians, whatever side of the political aisle they are on, think that the other side of the political aisle is an enemy. Brothers and sisters, we, we are in Christ. And we cannot allow our convictions, no matter how true they are, no matter what our experiences are, to not glorify God in our dealings with others, whatever their positions may be. And so the gospel talks to us in light of who we are in Christ. And we have to be careful of how we identify ourselves. I've mentioned Don Matchett's book, and I've given it away several people Don Matchett is a Lutheran brother. He used to host a talk show, a religious talk show, and then a secular talk show in the Pittsburgh area. And he wrote a book entitled Christ Esteem. And he said, I used to identify myself as a, as a, uh, a, a Lutheran Christian, or excuse me, as a citizen of New York who, who, who was a Lutheran, a German-American German Lutheran. And he says as he dealt with certain issues, it caused him to see that he was way too high up on the ark there. And Christ was way far down. Brothers and sisters, we, whatever else we are, when we are baptized into Christ, you don't stop being southern. You don't stop being from Alabama. You don't stop being African American. You don't stop being Jamaican. You don't stop being Haitian. But you do stop being Adam. And therefore, it's important for us. Because, see, Adam has been already. He's, that's why he's, every time he surfaces, he's worse than Freddy Krueger. Every time he surfaces, he's got to be killed. Because he will cause us to look for promises that are not given in the gospel. And he will cause us to glory in an identity that does not include a Roman cross. But look, not only, not only our identity as a channel where, where temptation can come in, but temptation also uses the channel of our emotions and our affections. What we desire and how we feel. And all you have to do is just look at the calendar and you will know how, how up and down your feelings can be. And so we have Blue Mondays, right? <laughs> and then we have, you know, some terrible Tuesdays. We have some wind, windy Wednesdays. 
and some Thursdays that can't wait till Friday come to the point where we say, TGIF, thank God it's Friday. Because our feelings can change. Our feelings and our affections change. Our, fle- our affections, those things that we desire, they are up and down, just like our tastes and clothes. If you don't believe it, go back and look at your closets. And if you've burned all of the evidence of your bad fashion taste, then get somebody who has the pictures from when you wore puka shells in the 70s. Brothers and sisters, our affections are subject to lead us away from trusting God's promises to us. Our, our, our mercurial emotions can lead us to wonder, does God really, really love us? And whatever you do, don't measure God's love for you by your love for him. Because you'll always lose. And the moment that you don't lose, you've lost even more. Because the person, I know what we mean when we say, you know, when we get up, get ready to give our speech on the theme and, you know, uh, giving honor to God who is ahead of my life. I know what we mean when we say that. I know what people meant when they used to say, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I know what we mean. I just know that is not true. I know what we intend. It's interesting to read the surveys about the first thing that people reach for in the morning when they wake up. And it ain't their Bible. It's their phone. Brothers and sisters, our emotions and our affections. If, we, if we're not careful, those things, those, those, those up and down emotions, because you know your day can start off fine. But we've all gotten that call. Haven't we? Haven't we gotten that call? Our day starts off well, and we got that call, and it doesn't matter if it's from a mortuary, a hospital, or a loved one. We've gotten that call. And so we can't trust our emotions. They will lead us astray. They will take us like a dog chasing its tail. Those are emotions and our affections, the things that we like. And, the, and, and listen, our affections are really important because the, the old saying goes that what the heart desires, the mind justifies and the will pursues. So here's a challenge, a channel by which temptation comes because all temptation is trying to do is to get you to not trust the promises of God. And to not seek the glory of God. And not be devoted to God. And the channel by which that temptation comes is manifold. But it certainly begins with how you identify yourself. Then it extends to your emotions and to your affections. But thirdly, a third channel by which our faithfulness or by which temptation comes is our outward circumstances what we have what we don't have where we are and what's going on you see our outward circumstances whether we are up then because sometimes I I like the proverb that says Lord don't give me too little that I might steal don't give me too much where I think I'm okay that I think I have it all or I don't need you we, we are prone, whether we are up or whether we are down, it can somehow be a channel by which our, our, our faith in God is diverted. There was a sermon about that I remember hearing uh, years ago as a child about the man that Jesus called a fool. 
and went on in the introduction of the sermon to talk about how the word is used, the word fool is used, and then he talks about foolish generations, but it says there's only one man that we have on record where Jesus says about him directly, you fool. And it's the man who, had, who was a decent farmer, and then one year he had a bumper crop, and in that bumper crop he had to tear down the old barns because they weren't big enough to build, a, to, to house all that he had received. And then when he built the bigger barns to store all that, his, that he had gained in the harvest, he sat back and said, oh, yeah, now I've arrived. So, he says, so, eat, drink, and be merry. Preacher says that man was a fool. Jesus called him a fool because they, he died that night. And there was nothing in his barn that could handle what he had to face in his death. You see, brothers and sisters, sometimes we can be so high up that we may give lip service, oh, I'm, I'm just blessed of God. But no, here's what blessed of God, does it really look like that? Because we can proud boast too. You know, we can, we can humble boast. We can humble boast. Oh, I'm just so undeserving, but look at all. Yeah, I'm just undeserving though. Right? But when we see ourselves in our, in our empty hands being filled by a gracious God, it changes our view of things. We know that we are impoverished without him. And there's nothing that we have that's not been given by him. So I'm not going to use, so, so, so in other words, Lord, help me to not use my knowledge that I don't deserve it as a badge in which I can boast. And at the same time, let me not be so proud of being poor that I've taken poor in spirit to a whole different level because I know that God blesses the poor. Don't let our, and or that if we were up and we become down, don't let that journey make you think that you have somehow been excluded from his grace and his privileges. Or if you've traveled the other way, if you've gone from down to up, don't assume that it's because you've crossed every T and have dotted every eye. Our external outward circumstances can cause us to divert our faith from God's promises to our bank account. Our external circumstances can cause us to lose our, our focus from God's glory to our own pride. And our outward circumstances can cause us to say, I don't owe God anything. Isn't that what happens sometimes when sickness and distress comes in? Don't, you all know, don't we all know someone who's on strike with God because of a storm that they went through, a loved one that they lost, and they can't trust a God that would allow such things to come into their lives? Here's what Paul says, and that brings me to my final thing. What God provides in our spiritual food and drink is what enables us to either escape or endure our season of temptation so that in it and through it, we still trust his promises we still seek his glory. We still are devoted to him. That's what we get at the end of Job. Job didn't understand all that he went through. And yes, there, was, there are chapters in Job where he's crying out of open pain to God. Then he reaches a point where he goes a little too far. And then the Lord reaches, answers back to Job and says, wait a minute, who is this speaking? Who darkens my door? Job, you, you got questions for me, but I've got a question for you. Where were you when I hung the stars out? 
Answer me. And while you're thinking about it, when I, when I put all of this stuff into place, when I hung the earth on a suspended axis that you can't even see, where were you? Oh, you weren't there? So you don't really know what you're talking about then. Don't you know that I've got this from start to finish? At the, at the end of it, Job put his hand over his mouth. And he said, I, I spoke without knowing. Because now I realize, Lord, that you, you are worthy. And what Job understands, and listen, don't go, run to the end of the story where Job had more at the end than at the beginning. No, go to the point where he realizes that he spoke without knowing because temptation led him in a different direction. Brothers and sisters, what God gives us when his gospel is preached and what he gives us when he sets the table before us is what it enables us to endure or to turn from temptation. Because what we know that what we have in Christ, it doesn't mean we become any less hardworking in whatever area of pursuit that we are in. But when he speaks to us through his gospel, and when he feeds us from this table, what he's telling you, A, all of your sins I've paid for. That's why Paul says in verse 16 that we participate. Do you not know that we participate? This is the body of Christ that in which we participate. That means the righteousness that he achieved in his body is credited to me. And it means that the wrath that came upon upon his body is also credited to me. Because he was wounded for my transgression. And the chastisement of my peace was laid upon him. So when the storms come, eat the bread. And know that the wrath has been averted. Brothers and sisters, here's what God does when we come to the table. He feeds us from the blood of Christ that tells us that that he is the blood. His blood is, is the one that has purchased eternal life for us. His blood was the final sacrifice that God accepted. And what that means is that if he has accepted Christ's blood on our behalf, then we don't have to shed blood for our continuing sin. But drink his blood. Know that his blood has cleansed us from every sinful deed. God feeds us. You're going to, listen, in this world, you're going to experience trial. And when trial comes, you'll be tempted. And you'll you'll be challenging God to show up to prove himself. And instead of showing up, he sets a table before you. And says, all of my yeas and all of my amens are right here. He'll set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And what I love about God feeding, setting a table before us in the presence of our enemies is our enemies always clack, 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 always got something to say. And the problem is so much of it is true. And God tells us, sit down and eat and hear the words of your Savior. This is my body that was broken for you. And this is my blood that was shed for you. You don't have to stop trusting because the weather changes. And your identity is now not the the, the decorative birth certificate that's on your wall or in your memory book. But the identity that matters 
is the birth certificate recorded in heaven where moths can't get to it. And no hospital is not a hospital that can burn down. They said the hospital that I was born in, that, that the, and they do have record, by the way. They do have record they, that I was born. I, I was born in the hospital, but that hospital was closed down. But God records our birth in a place that can't be broken into by thieves, that moth and corruption can't get to. Because when we are baptized into him, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's no sickness and there's no sin that can cause it to be erased. There is no temptation that we can experience that is not common to redeem sinners to get you to turn away from his promises and make, make you think he doesn't love you or to seek his glory or to be brought under his dominion and be devoted to him. Because God has given us a way of escape or a way of enduring so that when we eat in the presence of our enemies, we don't have to stand and play. He's given us a way of escape through his gospel preached and audibly received and physical, audibly and physically received in the bread and the cup. This is the blood that was shed for you. And this table is what gives you bold access before the throne of grace that you can find mercy and grace in your time of need. Amen.